0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Well, I look forward to um, uh, talking with everyone this evening um, as uh, we discuss some of the latest updates um, science and thoughts when it comes to COVID testing and variants. Before we dive into that, I just want to take a moment and reflect on the scale of the COVID-19 pandemic in relation to the original SARS pandemic in 2003. And there's really an unprecedented difference in terms of the number of infections. And we need to stop and think about why that is. And I think when people have done that, one of the leading conclusions is that COVID-19 is uniquely characterized by pre-symptomatic and asymptomatic transmission. This was not the case for the original SARS virus and SARS pandemic. And we first recognized this um, when we saw what happened on cruise ships over a year ago. There was the Diamond Princess cruise ship um, where ultimately about 20% of people tested positive And what really surprised the world is that almost half of those people were asymptomatic at the time of testing. And this kind of really reshaped our perspective on understanding disease transmission with respect to SARS coronavirus, because before that, we really thought it was symptomatic people uh, who were infectious and who transmitted. Since that time, people have gone on to model infectiousness and better understand this phenomenon of asymptomatic and presymptomatic transmission. What I'm showing here on a slide is um, infectiousness uh, represented by density of infectiousness as a function of days from symptom onset. And these are data that were generated from a study of transmission pair events. They looked at 77 people who were known to have transmitted SARS coronavirus from one person to another. And they modeled precisely the time between transmission and they calculated the degree of infectiousness uh, as a function of days from symptom onset. And what they concluded and what they found is that peak infectiousness and peak viral load happen at or before the time of symptom onset for SARS coronavirus 2. And that is profoundly different than the scenario for the original SARS virus in 2003, where peak infectiousness and peak viral load happened 10 days after symptom onset. So in 2003, if someone was symptomatic with respiratory infections and it was concerning that they may have SARS, if they were isolated as soon as they had symptoms, then the transmission chain stopped. And that's simply not possible with sars coronavirus 2 because people are most infectious before they even know they're infected. And this feature is really um, a defining um, characteristic of sars coronavirus 2 and probably contributes significantly to why um, we have such A greater number of infections with the COVID 19 pandemic compared to what happened in 2003. So, this is an important concept to keep in mind as we talk through diagnostic testing um, this evening. So, let's move into diagnostic testing. So, what are the key learning objectives that I want to cover? Um, Number one, what are the types of COVID testing? Two, uh, the dynamics of viral load and infectiousness. We just touched on that a little bit. Um, the concepts of sensitivity and specificity and issues with false negative and false positive tests, um, and then the use cases for certain types of tests that you um, might have gotten that you might get, uh, PCR tests versus uh, less sensitive rapid tests. So really kind of the foundational key uh, tests in terms of identifying people with sars coronavirus 2 infection are nucleic acid amplification tests. And really the type that is the most common, the gold standard test is called PCR or polymerase chain reaction. And the way that this works is by detecting the viral RNA. And um, what you're seeing here is a diagram of the SARS coronavirus genome down at the bottom. Uh, It's about 30,000 nucleotides long. And it's got a whole bunch of different genes. And those genes encode proteins that ultimately make um, the virus that's shown in the picture here. So for instance, we have the N gene to the far right that encodes the nucleocapsid protein, which is a critical part of the virus. We have the S gene, which encodes the spike protein, which decorates the surface of the virus and which binds to the cell receptors to have an infection. So PCR tests detect um, different regions of these different genes. And the most common region that's detected is the N gene. Number two, we have SARS coronavirus antigen tests. So instead of detecting the coronavirus genes, in this case, we're actually detecting the actual viral proteins. So it's one step up. And um, some of these tests detect the nucleocapsid protein. Some of them detect the spike protein. Um, but antigen tests, these are the ones that um, you might be able to get in a drugstore um, in the near future. These are the rapid tests, typically, um, they detect viral proteins. Perhaps the best known type of antigen test is the uh, Binax Now card. Um, made by Abbott, kind of looks like a home pregnancy test. You take a swab, you put the swab on the card, and uh, if you have a coronavirus infection, you get a red line that shows up. Um, It's nice, it's user-friendly, it's cheap, um, it's fairly reliable, um, but it has some unique properties and issues that we'll talk about in a moment. We can put um, these nucleic acid and antigen tests on a spectrum. In terms of um, their limit of detection, how little amount of virus uh, can these detect? And this can be important if you really wanna make sure you detect someone um, with any level of infection. So, really, uh, the gold standard here is gonna be our PCR, reverse transcriptase PCR. Um, this is a picture of a typical PCR machine. This is the uh, expert machine made by Cepheid Bay Area Company. It gives you an answer in 45 minutes to uh, three hours, detecting viral RNA. Kind of in the middle, we have these rapid nucleic acid amplification tests. This is like our Abbott ID Now test. It's a box. You put a swab specimen um, in a solution in there, and it gives you an answer in 15 minutes, but it's not as sensitive. It can't detect as low an amount of virus, um, so it can miss... Uh, certain infections at certain stages. And then towards the right side of the spectrum, the least sensitive test, the test that requires the most amount of virus in the sample in order to turn positive is the antigen test. Um, Advantage of the antigen test, again, it's fast, it's cheap. Um, All you need is a card and a swab versus one of these complicated machines, but it's not as sensitive in terms of detecting. Okay, third type of test, um, coronavirus antibody tests. Um, so this type of test detects human antibodies that are made against the viral proteins during an infection. And uh, there's certain use case scenarios for antibody tests. Um, you, uh, essentially the way they work is that you get a signal um, if there's presence of antibodies that have been formed against the SARS coronavirus proteins um, or against uh, a target that's produced by a vaccine. Key point with antibody tests that I want to make. They're not useful for diagnosing acute COVID. Why is that? They're very simple, it's because it takes time for our bodies to produce antibodies. So there's different types of antibodies that we produce in response to infection, two general categories immunoglobulin G shown in the red trace, immunoglobulin M shown in the blue t- trace. Most commercial antibody tests that detect other types of viruses include both of these. And regardless of which of those types of immunoglobulin antibodies the test is operating on, the key point here is that it takes about two weeks in order for that test to truly give you an informative result. So antibody tests are great at indicating whether or not someone has been infected with SARS coronavirus, um, but they're not useful at diagnosing acute infections. If you look here at two to four days after symptom onset, um, the antibody tests are less than um, a third positive. So they're not useful for diagnosing acute infections, but they're good for epidemiologic purposes to identify who's been infected and who hasn't. So that's an important concept. Okay, let's focus in um, on PCR tests. We'll go back to um, this uh, plot that we had before looking at limit of detection. How little virus can a test actually pick up in terms of amount of virus in a sample, genome copies per milliliter of sample. An important concept um, that you'll probably hear about if you haven't already is the cycle threshold. And this relates to the way that a PCR test works. So PCR stands for polymerase chain reaction. And essentially, what's happening is a chain reaction, a number of cycles that amplify the amount of nucleic acid in a specimen. And so the the greater the number of cycles it takes to get a signal, the less nucleic acid, the less viral RNA that's actually in a sample. So if you have a uh, very high cycle threshold, that's the threshold of cycles in order to actually get a signal on the machine, that means you have a very low amount of virus in your sample. And so the CT value or cycle threshold value is an important concept for PCR tests. On the right side of the figure, we're looking at the amount of virus uh, in a given sample. It's a dilution series. And then what we see on the y-axis here is the cycle threshold. And this just emphasizes the point that the more virus in a sample, the lower the cycle threshold number. And there is some variability depending on what gene of the viral genome is being detected. Some genes are present at higher amounts um, in any given sample because the virus is, let's say, making more nucleocapsid protein. There's more N-gene expression. And so there will be some differences based on the gene target for the cycle threshold. So I want to introduce that concept. Okay, next I want to mention sensitivity and specificity two terms that relate to test performance compared to a gold standard. Kind of an easy way to think about this is sensitivity is the true positive rate of a test, and specificity is the true negative rate of a test. So just keep that in mind, two kind of key concepts. And. I wanted to mention that up front because uh, there's quite a bit of variability depending on what type of sample is used to detect SARS coronavirus. And this actually holds true for other types of viruses. There are some slight differences, but we can think about influenza virus, um, a major problem throughout the world, less so this year because of um, the universal masking in many places. Um, This applies to rhinovirus, which can cause the common cold to uh, severe pneumonia. What we see based on studies is that there's variability depending on what kind of sample you get. So if you do a throat swab, an oral pharyngeal swab, um, you're looking at about half of those um, tests are actually going to be able to pick up a true infection. So the sensitivity isn't that good. Things are different though, if we talk about a nasal pharyngeal swab. So this is a swab that goes deep into the nose. Uh, if you've had this done, um, you probably have. I've had several, um, it almost feels like someone's trying to stick a swab into your brain, um, but perhaps not surprisingly, the sensitivity is better and uh, it can be as high as 89%. You can do a combination, you can swab your throat and with the same swab do your nasopharynx, pharynx, that uh, bumps the performance higher. then we can start to look at um, virus that might be in your lungs, in your lower respiratory tract. We can do a sputum sample where you cough up something deep from within your lungs. Uh, That gives you a greater sensitivity, greater chance of detecting true infection. And then uh, really the best performing option is bronchial alveolar lavage. This is uh, pulmonologist goes with a special bronchoscope uh, deep into your lungs uh, and gets a sample. And not surprisingly, that's going to be the most sensitive uh, approach for detecting an infection. It would be unlikely to miss COVID pneumonia if you do a bronchial alveolar lavage. Okay. So there's some differences depending on specimen type. You know, the question comes up, um, if we're talking about swab tests, uh, do we really need a clinician um, with years of medical training to stick a swab up your nose in order to get a sample? Is, that true, is there truly some art to doing that? And the answer uh, is pretty much no. Um, this was a study that came out, uh, you know, almost a year ago, but it's an important study. And it looked at the performance of swabs collected by healthcare workers or swabs collected by patients. And this emphasizes the difference in these three different panels based on the type of swab. So we're looking at the correlation between healthcare worker collected MP swab, which if you have to pick a single swab is probably your best bet, versus patient collected um. Swab. So if, if a patient collects an oral pharyngeal tongue swab, the correlation isn't that good. Not surprising because we just talked about how oral pharyngeal swabs are not that sensitive um, compared to other types of swabs. If the patient collects a nasal swab, we see much better correlation compared to nasal pharyngeal swab. And then if a patient collects a mid-turbinate swab, so this is a swab that doesn't go you know all the way to your brain up your na- nasal pharynx not really to your brain but pretty pretty deep um, but about halfway up uh, into the nose um, we see that that's actually a very good correlation um, with respect to a healthcare worker doing a nasal pharyngeal swab so bottom line here um, individual people are able to uh, master the concept of putting a swab uh, up their nose to get an appropriate sample for coronavirus testing um, but uh, this was formally studied and has really changed the way that we do a lot of diagnostic testing because um, there uh, are significant exposure risks for the healthcare workers who actually have to swab patients, especially if it's a lot of patients in a single day. Um, there can be sneezing, there can be aerosolization. Um, it's, it's a high-risk uh, job to do that, so it's, this was actually a really important finding to learn um, that patients can collect swabs and the samples are fine. Okay, um, let's move into this question. Do we really need a highly sensitive test? Um, So we talked about the spectrum of nucleic acid amplification tests, PCR, very sensitive, antigen tests, less sensitive. And to try and answer this question, I'm going to go back uh, to this plot here where we looked at the infectiousness and amount of viral load as a function of days from symptom onset. So if we're talking about the amount of virus in someone's nose that we need to detect in order to diagnose COVID, it's going to depend on where the person is with respect to their days from symptom onset. If we're testing someone at or before the time of symptom onset, There's so much virus in their upper respiratory tract that, you know, it doesn't matter really what test we use, we'll probably pick it up. But if we're looking um, at, let's say, two and a half days before symptom onset, we're doing surveillance screening. Let's say this is someone coming into the hospital. They don't have any symptoms. They're going to... Undergo a surgical procedure, but we need to make sure that they don't have COVID so that they don't get admitted and uh, pass it on to other people. Um, we may miss uh, certain infections um, if we use a test that's not very sensitive and they're at this early stage, um, or if they're at a later stage when their viral load is lower. So keep that in mind. I want to also show this scatter plot which um, is a different way of looking at the same type of um, information and provides additional confirmation of this concept. So here we're again looking at duration of symptoms plotted uh, on the x-axis. And then on the y-axis, we're looking at the amount of virus um, in a given person's swab sample, um, our viral RNA copies per milliliter of swab sample. Then we see a whole bunch of dots, and these dots are samples from um, 129 patients who were admitted to the hospital, and not only did they get tested for SARS coronavirus, but um, these samples underwent culture for the virus, and viral culture allows us to actually determine if there's an active infection. Um, because if there's an active infection, there's actively replicating virus and that can be recovered. And so this was really an important study um, because what it told us is that for all intents and purposes, for most patients with normal immune systems, um, it's highly unlikely to actually have actively replicating virus, highly unlikely for someone to be actively infectious Beyond 20 days. And that's a very important finding for public health um, and a very important finding for um, informing our understanding of COVID. So, from this scatter plot of data, um, these um, authors of this study were able to do some modeling. And in the left panel here, um, They looked at the probability of a positive culture or probability of active infection as a function of duration of symptoms. What you can appreciate is that really by and large, um, most people with COVID um, are no longer infectious after 10 days. And if you remember from that plot with all the dots on the slide before, um, it was really after 20 days where uh, there was uh, no positive cultures identified. This was also modeled in um, essentially the same model, but plotted instead of duration of symptoms, um, amount of virus. And what we also see is that there's a um, direct relationship between the amount of virus in a sample and the likelihood that we have a positive culture, the likelihood that someone is actively infectious. And so these were really two important findings in this study, which uh, went on to really inform the CDC's guidance in terms of um, helping us understand how long someone is infectious and helping us understand the importance of um, having a highly sensitive versus not so sensitive test. If what we're saying here on the right panel is that uh, people with relatively low amounts of virus in their respiratory tract are unlikely to be infectious, well, then the stakes aren't as high for detecting them. If they're not infectious, it's not as critical to identify uh, these people. In, in this case, we might wanna know if someone's had COVID, um, but if they're not at risk of transmitting it to someone else, uh, that's pretty important. Okay, kind of want to reemphasize the same concept on the last slide, but instead of viral load, uh, bring in CT value. Remember, we said that CT value correlates directly um, with viral load. The lower the CT value, the fewer the number of cycles it takes to get a positive test, meaning there's more virus in the sample. And this uh, was a meta-analysis, a compilation of a lot of different uh, studies um, that looked at the relationship between CT value and culture positivity or infectiousness. Basically, what they found is that above a CT value of 35, extremely low chance that a given person actually has an active um, sars coronavirus 2 infection. Okay. So with those uh, concepts in mind, we can start to think about what's needed in order to have a good COVID diagnostic test. And we can take that plot of viral load and infectiousness over time, and um, the one that we've looked at twice, um, and we can replot it as it's shown here in the picture. So instead of days from symptom onset, we can set our zero mark at days since exposure. For most people, it takes about five or six days to develop symptoms um, if they're going to get a coronavirus infection after they've been exposed. And what we see, as was observed before, is that peak viral load, which is on the y-axis, peak infectiousness happens at or before the the time of symptom onset. And we're looking at two horizontal lines here. And these lines correspond to the limit of detection or analytical sensitivity of two tests. So the upper line, um, the dark gray line, corresponds to the limit of detection or sensitivity of one of these rapid antigen tests that you could get at Walgreens. you know it's about a hundred times less sensitive than one of these PCR tests. It takes a hundred times more virus um, to turn one of these rapid antigen tests positive. But we need to take a look at this plot and ask ourselves the question, does it matter? So if we focus in on this red square, um, this is someone who looks like they're about six and a half days after exposure, maybe a day after symptom onset. If this is a person in whom we're trying to detect coronavirus, it doesn't matter what type of test we use, they're going to be positive. There's so much virus in their upper respiratory tract, um, we're only going to start to see a difference between uh, the cheap rapid antigen test and the expensive sensitive PCR test, if we're looking in a very discrete window. And I've highlighted these windows here in yellow. So there's kinda two areas where we might miss this infection if we use the cheap rapid antigen test. If we're looking at 15 days out, then um, we'll probably only be able to detect coronavirus if we use the highly sensitive PCR test. Uh, But then again, we just learned from the prior study that after about 10 days, most people are non-infectious. So if we're we're truly interested in identifying actively infectious people, um, then uh, in this case, the rapid antigen test is sufficient. It'll do the job. Kind of the other area that we miss is this really small yellow sliver at the beginning. Uh, This is when People are just starting to have their infection established. Their viral load hasn't climbed. They don't yet have symptoms. Um, If this is your only opportunity to test someone and you use a rapid antigen test, you could get a false negative test. You could miss their infection. Whereas if they had a PCR test, you would pick it up. So, what this really tells us is that what is perhaps more important here is how frequently you test someone as opposed to the absolute sensitivity of a test. If you're testing someone every day or every two days, the chance that you'll pick up their active infection is very high. In fact, the probability is as good or better than if you do a random test with a PCR instrument. However, if you only get one shot at testing someone, let's say before they come into the hospital, or let's say this was before vaccination in our country, and this was someone going into a nursing home, if they could only get one test and you absolutely wanted to make sure they didn't have COVID, then PCR would be your best bet. Um, But for all intents and purposes, frequent testing with a less sensitive test um, will do a fantastic job of getting active infections. We can actually take a look at um, how this was modeled, looking at the percent of infectiousness removed. So this was a model to ask, how well could these two different types of testing strategies with the less sensitive test and the more sensitive test um, actually perform for removing infectiousness from a population? And what we see is that um, if testing is done daily, there's essentially no difference. Um, The less sensitive test performs almost as well for removing infectiousness because it gets almost every actively infectious person. If we start extending things out to testing people every three days or only once a week or every 14 days, then we start to see a difference. And then it can make a bigger difference to use a more sensitive test. So key point here, test sensitivity is secondary to frequency for effective COVID surveillance. Kind of the corollary to this, um, the complementary concept is that turnaround time is also important. So if it takes a week to get your test results back, um, then your chance of transmitting while you're waiting for your test is going to be pretty high. So we can take a look at how this might work using the same type of plot. And we can focus in on the green dot. Again, this is our patient who had a test about six and a half days since they were exposed. And what we concluded was that uh, for this person, it wouldn't matter what kind of test they had, uh, because uh, in this case, even a less sensitive antigen test would pick them up. However, we can think about their likelihood of transmitting their infection to someone else while waiting for the test result. If the test result takes two days to come back, we can actually model the amount of infectiousness um, that would be represented by that time period. And this is what um, the authors did, and we can look at the green bar here For a theoretical scenario where you'd have to wait 48 hours to get your COVID test result, and this was a very real scenario um, and still is in many places for people who get coronavirus testing, for someone at this stage of their infection, almost a third of their potential infectiousness in terms of transmitting to other people would be represented in that time period when they don't actually know if they're infected. They may not be taking extra precautions to prevent transmitting to others. And so this modeling study really told us that turnaround time for testing is very important in order to prevent transmission and for surveillance. If you get your answer in 15 minutes, then the chance that you prevent a transmission um, is going to be so much greater. So these two concepts, test sensitivity is secondary to frequency and to turnaround time are are two important concepts um, with respect to COVID testing. I want to make um, a few other comments about the rapid antigen tests? So with everything that I just mentioned, it really points to a scenario where in most cases, having these rapid antigen tests um, can provide enough information to identify actively infectious people in the population. And um, we can uh, take a look at how these perform in a slightly different format. Um, it's essentially the same material that was on the prior slide, but this was actually a study that was done in the mission district in San Francisco, uh, by investigators at UCSF and San Francisco general hospital. And they screened people, um, in the mission and they compared the rapid antigen tests to high sensitivity PCR tests. And what you're looking at here um, on the y-axis is uh, the cycle threshold value. And we can see it goes from 15, which is a very high amount of virus, to 40, which is barely detectable amount of virus. And then we can see how the two tests compare. So the blue dots means that the infection was picked up by both PCR and by the Binax rapid antigen tests. And then the yellow dots are cases where the antigen test missed the infection. And what we see here is all but uh, one case did the antigen test pick up people who had samples with a cycle threshold less than 35, which we concluded from our slide with the meta-analysis generally represents active infectiousness. So again, these findings done right here in San Francisco from a study done in San Francisco in the Mission District uh, demonstrate that uh, the rapid antigen tests can pick up people who are actively infectious with high amounts of virus um, as well as a PCR assay. But they tend to miss this group of patients with very low amounts of virus who might be in those two window periods either very early during their infection before they have much detectable virus, or at the tail end where they're unlikely to be infectious. So this really kind of brings us to um, our conclusion of the answer to the question, when do we need a highly sensitive test? Um, Really it's in scenarios um, where the stakes are high, where we may only have a single opportunity to test someone. So, in patients who are going to be hospitalized, if we only have one opportunity to test them, um, or in other high risk settings, let's say before someone goes into a nursing home or goes into an area where they could potentially infect other people, um, then we would absolutely want the most sensitive test possible to try and um, identify anyone who might be in that early stage and later become infectious. Uh, But for any type of general surveillance, uh, for the purposes of identifying active infections, then we can go with these less sensitive antigen tests, and they'll um, essentially do the job well. I want to make um, one comment here on false positive tests. Um, These have been in the news um, really from the start of the pandemic. When the original PCR reagents that were sent to labs by the CDC were themselves contaminated. Um, and false positive tests are most often due to laboratory contamination. Um, it can be hard to avoid, especially if you're dealing with samples from patients with extremely high amounts of virus as well as samples that are negative. It's very easy to cross contaminate. Um, and uh, this happens from time to time. It's thought to happen about 1% of PCR tests. But this becomes a bigger issue um, if the prevalence of the of infection is very low in a community, such as the case right now in San Francisco. Um, the prevalence of COVID, thankfully, is very low. So the chance that a positive PCR test or other test is truly positive is going to be lower now than it was in January when the prevalence was very high. Um, So this is an issue that comes up um, to the point that at UCSF, if we're doing surveillance screening of people coming into the hospital or surveillance screening of people who've been in the hospital that were regularly checking for COVID to prevent hospital transmission, if we get a positive test that seems out of place, we'll do repeat testing. And from that, we've estimated um, during times of low prevalence, about 5% of positive tests um, are actually false positive and asymptomatic people. So bottom line here, false positive results um, happen. Um, and um, it's important to be aware of, and we can identify these cases by simply retesting. All right, Um, so in terms of our learning objectives, we want to know how we detect coronavirus variants. We want to get an idea of the most widely recognized coronavirus variants of concern. Um, We'd like to talk about why we should be concerned about variants. Um, Why are they called variants of concern? It's because we're concerned about them. And um, we need to discuss um, the protection offered by vaccines against variants. So let's move into the first question and learning point as we transition from diagnostic testing to talking about variants. So how do we detect variants? Well, it's not using one of these testing modalities that we've talked about for the last 30 minutes. Standard tests can't distinguish uh, these variants of concern from other lineages of coronavirus. They'll tell you if someone has SARS coronavirus, um, but they won't tell you if there's a variant. So how do we detect variants? Well, we need to use a technology um, called sequencing, whole genome sequencing. Um, It's a technology that I use regularly in my lab. Um, It's a technology that for clinical diagnosis of infectious diseases was um, significantly pioneered right here at UCSF. And the way it works, um, you get a swab sample or any other type of sample. You extract um, RNA from that sample. And then you sequence the RNA in the sample. And that RNA is going to contain a mix of RNA from the person. um, And if they actually have an infection, RNA from the virus. And we can get the sequence of the virus from that approach. And what we can do is we can arrange the sequences from the virus uh, together in a way to ask how similar or different they are. And we can, from that, be able to track transmission and identify the emergence of new variants. And what we end up getting is what's called a phylogenetic tree. The closer things are on the tree in terms of the branches, the more closely related they are. And so this is a phylogenetic tree from SARS coronavirus sequencing done at uh, the UCSF-affiliated research institute, the CZ Biohub. And we're looking at all of the different coronavirus um, genomes that are colored by county in California. And the Biohub was doing sequencing for about half the counties in California Um, during the peak of of the pandemic. So we need to use a sequencing technology in order to identify the genetic sequence differences that make variants, variants. For instance, um, this is a snapshot of the phylogenetic tree um, that tracked the B14271429 variant. Um, with the so-called California variant that emerged um, largely towards the end of last year. And this is looking just at 2020. Um, This um, really became an issue in Southern California, in LA, um, and then at one point became the dominant variant in California. And you can see that it actually first was detected in about May of 2020, about a year ago, And then, really, it wasn't until later in 2020 that it took off and started to represent a larger fraction of the genomes from surveillance efforts. So, there are a number of variants of concern that have been identified um, in the past six months. And I've listed kind of the key ones here. There are some other ones, and variants are continually emerging. And it's a lot of numbers and letters, it can be hard to keep track of and they're often associated with geographic locations that are assigned based on where they were first identified. So B117 is probably um, the most widely known one, um, was first identified in the United Kingdom. It became the dominant circulating SARS coronavirus in the United Kingdom in December. And is more transmissible, and has since uh, really become the dominant circulating variant in the United States. So on the right side of the slide, what we're looking at is the fraction of SARS coronavirus variants um, that are present in the United States. And this is data from whole genome sequencing that's tracked by the U.S. CDC. Um, you can go to this website in the lower left-hand corner and get this information from the CDC. Uh, anytime you want. You can see that in February 117 really comprised a very small fraction of COVID cases in the US. And now, um, as of, you know, May 8, it was really the majority of COVID cases were due to be 117. We have some other variants, 1351, this was uh, described in South Africa, has some unique and concerning properties that are shared with the P1 variant from Brazil, we'll talk about those. The so-called California variant, 427-429, is one that certainly has been in the news a lot. And then... Arguably from a public health standpoint, uh, perhaps the most concerning variant is uh, the B1617 variant, which is circulating in India, and many people believe is um, contributory to the terrible situation um, in terms of uh, COVID uh, in India. Okay. Um, so when it comes to variants, um, the key point is that. The coronavirus genomes have mutations in them that lead to changes in the spike protein. And the spike protein, again, is this protein that decorates the outer surface of the coronavirus and is critical for binding to receptors on cells that the virus infects and allowing infection to take place. And we can uh, take a deeper dive um, and look at the actual uh, structures of some of these variants in terms of the particular region in the uh, spike protein in which some of these mutations occur. So these are three-dimensional x-ray crystallography structures that um, model the structure of a certain part of that spike protein that decorates the outer surface of the coronavirus called the receptor binding domain. And this is the critical part of the spike protein that binds to the ACE2 receptor on cells. And what you're seeing here on the different uh, panels off to the right are the different variants with different colors based on some of the key locations in uh, changes in amino acids that happen um, in the spike protein receptor binding domain. Um, And we'll come back to that. So why are we concerned about variants? Um, Well, number one is the potential for increased transmissibility. Um, If we have a more transmissible virus, we can get more infections, and that's a problem. And um, really, one of the key reasons for increased transmissibility comes from increased ability to infect cells because of these mutations in the spike protein that allow for greater affinity when binding to the ACE2 receptor on cells. And we saw evidence of this if we just focus in on the B117 variant, the one that was first identified in the UK. And we can take a look at what happened between uh, November 5th, 2020, and December 2nd, 2020. And the colors here refer to the change in the prevalence of infection due to either B117 versus the other lineages, the other. Prior um, SARS coronavirus lineages or variants. And so, red means that B117 um, increased in terms of the number of infections on the left hand side. And then, if we see blue, that means there was a contraction or a reduction in the number of infections. And so, what we can see is that by and large, if we look at a map of England during this time period, B117 took off. We see a notable expansion, um, and actually a contraction of other lineages. So 117 was replacing the previous SARS coronaviruses that were circulating in England, and we've now seen this in the United States as we saw on the last slide. Okay, so why is that a problem? Um, We're talking about transmissibility, but um, if a variant is not actually more lethal, then why do we care that much? Well, we can actually model this. So here we're looking at a theoretical plot of time on the x-axis versus the number of deaths caused by coronavirus infection. If we're talking about the original strain, we see a gray trace um, that's down at the bottom. If we're talking about a variant that is 50% more lethal then we get 50% more deaths from any given infection. And that's bad, but it's not nearly as bad as a variant that is equally lethal, but 50% more transmissible. Because the number of potential deaths that would be caused is significantly higher simply due to the increased number of transmission events. So that's an important concept. So we're concerned about these variants because of increased transmissibility, even if they're not any more lethal, they can lead to an increased number of deaths. Now, a key point that I'll emphasize towards the end of this talk is that vaccination can prevent all of this. And that's a really important thing to keep in mind. But it's also important to keep in mind that while COVID is on the way out in the United States, um, that is not the case in most of the world. So these are very relevant issues. In most of the world. Okay, point number two about why we're concerned is the potential for vaccine and immune escape. And this is an area that we're still understanding. Of the different variants that I mentioned, um, all but the B117 variant uh, have potential for vaccine or immune escape. And essentially, what this means is there's resistance. Um, from the virus in terms of being able to be neutralized and eliminated by antibodies produced by the person. And these antibodies can either be produced after natural infection. So if you got COVID, let's say last April, and then we're exposed again to coronavirus again from one of these variants of concern, you would have antibodies circulating in your body that would offer some protection. But what we've learned in cases like that is that some of these variants, such as the ones that are bolded here, can escape antibody neutralization, Um, in particular, antibodies produced following natural infection. Things are a little bit different from uh, vaccine-induced antibody production. Um, So that's concerning. And um, if we take a look, again, at the three-dimensional structure of the receptor-binding domain of the spike protein, I want to highlight two key uh, amino acid changes that are thought to confer a significant amount of this um, reduced antibody neutralization. And it's really at this 484 position. These are the numbers of amino acids uh, in the spike protein And really, this change in terms of the amino acid that's there can allow for the virus to evade antibodies that might otherwise play an important role in neutralizing infection. I think the world got fairly concerned when they saw the results um, from the Novavax and Chadox vaccine trials um, that were done in South Africa. So both of these vaccines demonstrated very good efficacy against disease prevention when assessed either before the introduction of these variants or in other regions of the globe that did not have the one three five one variant from South Africa. I think both were over 75% effective. But what we saw from the Novavax trial is that um, there was only fifty percent effectiveness of this vaccine against the one three five one variant. And actually, for NovaVAx, I believe it was um, almost ninety percent effective against the original coronavirus strain. Um, so this raised concern. The Chadox vaccine um, was only ten percent effective. So essentially it was worthless in terms of protecting against mild to moderate disease. Uh, in the face of this South African variant. Now, one important thing to point out in these studies, number one, um, there were no deaths in either the vaccine group or the placebo group. And um, that's an important uh, thing to note. And it can indicate a couple of things. One, it can indicate that these vaccines prevent against severe disease which seems to be the case. Uh, But these studies were somewhat limited because um, the majority of people who were enrolled in them were young, otherwise healthy individuals who would be very unlikely to develop severe outcomes from COVID, um, which by and large uh, affects older adults in terms of severe disease. Uh, But nonetheless, um, the results of these vaccine trials raised concern against the role of variants in terms of vaccine efficacy, but also really hinted at potential that despite this um, ability to still be infected, there may be this protection against severe disease. And we'll talk about that in a second. I wanna transition to this slide, which um, it's a figure that demonstrates the ability of antibodies induced by the Pfizer vaccine to neutralize coronavirus infection due to different types of coronaviruses. And so on the left in the red, we're looking at the wild type or the original coronavirus strain. And um, we're looking at things relative to this. So in the purple, we're looking at the predominant variant that was circulating um, in the world until About October of last year. Um, And then we're looking at some of the other variants. And so B117, this is the UK variant, a very slight um, reduction in the ability of vaccine induced antibodies to neutralize that, but not significant. But then if we move into the green bar, which is 1351, the variant associated with discovery in South Africa we start to see a five-fold reduction in antibody neutralization. And then if we take a look at the one six one seven variant, the one that is predominantly circulating in India, we see almost a six-fold reduction. So despite vaccination, we see that these variants can escape uh, the antibody neutralization um, induced by vaccines. And Presumably, this contributes to some of the findings in the prior vaccine trials that I mentioned. Now, those prior vaccine trials were adenovirus vaccines, um, different than the Pfizer or Moderna vaccines that um, probably most of you have received. Um, And so that's something that's important to keep in mind. Coming back, um, just want to emphasize um, that despite uh, the concerning findings in terms of antibody neutralization and efficacy in protecting against mild to moderate disease, these studies did importantly have no cases of severe disease, um, but they were limited by really very few cases, only one case of severe disease, even in the placebo group. So really, the jury was still out to some degree in terms of Um, the role of vaccines in protecting against variants because there just wasn't that much data. However, uh, just recently, we've started to see a more complete picture and the news is very good. Um, This was a uh, study that was done by Public Health England and they looked at the efficacy of the Pfizer vaccine against two of the most significant variants of concern. The 117 variant, which um, was circulating in the UK, was the dominant variant uh, between November and early 2021. Now is the dominant variant in the United States. Um, And then they looked at 1617. This is the variant that is causing uh, so much suffering in India and has actually gone on to replace 117 in the UK. It's now the dominant variant in the UK because it's more transmissible. The really important finding of this study, it's still a preprint, was that the Pfizer vaccine was 88% effective against um, perhaps the most concerning of the variants, the 1617 variant. And this, you know, combined with um, the trends that we're observing in the United States uh, where vaccination rates are continually increasing, I think really provides uh, an important demonstration that uh, the mRNA vaccines um, really are able to prevent uh, symptomatic COVID from variants. So why is that? Um, We saw that um, even with vaccination, we can uh, see the potential for the virus to escape antibody mediated um, immune defense. However, there's more to our immune systems than antibodies. and B cells, um, there are T cells, which play a key role. And um, an increasing number of studies now really tell us about the importance of the T cell response. And what we're looking at here are some data from a recent study that looked at the uh, T cell activity with respect to a number of different variants. We're looking at one type of T-cell on the left, the CD4 T-cells. We're looking at another type, the CD8 T-cells on the right. And basically, the key take-home point is that uh, regardless of the types of variants that were evaluated, there were four different types here in different colors, the T-cell response remained robust. So even though these variants could escape antibodies produced by our immune system, produced by the immune systems of vaccinated people, their T cell response induced by the vaccines remained intact. And that was uh, sufficient to uh, prevent infection and, la- and likely explains the absence of severe disease uh, despite um, the onslaught of these variants. So, this is uh, in a very important concept. I think it should be a very reassuring finding um, that our vaccines are effective in terms of preventing infection from variants. Um, due, in large part, to T-cell mediated immunity. So uh, bottom line, when it comes to variants, they're concerning, but vaccines, um, as well as some of our traditional measures for preventing transmission, mass, and distancing are still effective. One of the last point I want to touch on with respect to variants is the question of how do variants arise? And this is an area that we don't fully understand, um, but there's increasing evidence to suggest that they may arise more frequently in people with um, severe immune compromise. So these are folks who uh, may have autoimmune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis and have to take immunosuppressants. Folks who may have had organ transplantations uh, in order to survive severe disease and have to take immunosuppressants to prevent rejecting their organs. Um, What we see in these patients is a significant impairment in the ability to actually clear the infection. And what you're looking at here on the left side of the slide is the course of infection for a given patient with severe immune compromise um, that was unable to clear their coronavirus infection. We're looking at the cycle threshold on the y-axis. What we can see is that um, initially they had a high viral load, then uh, they cleared their infection somewhat, and then they relapsed. Um, they, I think, received some, some convalescent plasma and other therapy, cleared their viral load or reduced it um, for a while, and then they had a relapse again. And so they were never able to fully eliminate the virus from their body. Um, and in that setting of immune pressure from their immune system, trying to clear the virus, but not enough to actually fully eliminate it the virus had an opportunity to evolve to try and escape um, this person's weakened immune system. And what we saw as a result was the accumulation of mutations that happened as the virus continued to replicate um, in this individual over time, as they went through this course of uh, recurrence and clearance um, of their infection. And the stars here indicate Um, mutations in different parts of the viral genome, the spike protein, um, as well as the E and N gene. And we can see that uh, mutations arose over time. So while we don't entirely know how variants arise, we think that some of the most vulnerable people, um, immune compromised people who, you know, in the United States make up one to 5% of the population, um, folks who may never um fully become immune to coronavirus um, really um, may play a role in terms of um, allowing variants to arise. Still a lot more research needed in this area. Okay, so we're going to wrap up there. Um, I'd like to review the key points that we discussed first with respect to diagnostic testing. Key point number one, viral load and infectiousness is highest early during infection at or before the time of symptom onset. Key point two, PCR is the most sensitive and specific type of test. Key point three, antigen tests, rapid tests can identify active infections with high levels of virus. Um, Key point four, antibody tests do not detect new infections, but just past infections. In terms of coronavirus variants of concern, variants have mutations in the viral, um, in the gene that encodes the viral spike protein, which is recognized by the immune system and essential for infecting cells. Sequencing is used to detect and track variants. Some variants are more transmissible and can evade neutralizing antibodies, but mRNA vaccines appear to protect against most variants, likely because of T-cell mediated immunity.
1: Um, so with that, I'll wrap up,
0: um, and we can do some questions.
1: Thank you so much, Chaz. That was uh, spectacular and clear uh, and provocative at the same time, but of course, very reassuring. We do have a number of questions. Let, let me see if I can uh, start with a couple of uh, uh, broad questions. What is the current state of antigen testing, and why are we seeing more of it? Or is it just that I'm not seeing it, and it's being used more than I realized? Um, what's holding that up? And I guess you could add the same thing for self-testing, because again, um, we're not seeing that clinically very much either.
0: Yeah, it's a good question. So I think it's probably multifactorial. Um, one issue that's been a challenge, you know, really since the start of the pandemic is supply chain for testing materials and for diagnostic tests. You know, still, it's, it's not easy to get an antigen test um, at the local drugstore. Um, you know, production is being increased. There's a goal to make these more readily available, but um, still we're not quite there yet. In terms of self-tests, um, they're available, um, but, um, but perhaps not as widely promoted or as recognized. Um, but I think, you know, moving forward, we're going to see a shift towards um, greater use of antigen tests. Um, especially for people um, for at home testing. Um, and, you know, I think especially in cases, except for scenarios um, where the consequences of missing a positive test could be really high, such as before being admitted into a hospital.
1: Maybe uh, from uh, what some of the people listening, and myself, uh, point of view, another place where I'll I'll ask your opinion, Um, where they are using antigen testing, where you're not doing serial testing. So it's just single use entry to an event, let's say, or entry into a place. So you're about to go to the theater or a conference or whatever, or a baseball game, and they say, show us your test. Um, And that may, is that a case where uh, the low en- the, the, the likelihood of missing is low enough that it's still okay?
0: I think that would be, you know, an ideal use case for antigen tests, um, where really the goal is to pick up people who are actively infectious to try and reduce the risk of exposure to others at an event. Um, you know, depending on where you are in the country, you know, still half of people um, are not vaccinated. And, and we do have you know, a segment of our population that may never get immunity to coronavirus because of their underlying immune compromise. So, you know, I think examples um, such as a concert, um, even, you know, potentially before getting on a plane, uh, would be perfect use cases for antigen tests. They're easy, um, you get an answer right away, it could reduce the risk of infection transmission.
1: So you may miss those people, but they are not infectious yet.
0: That's right. Yeah. So perhaps you miss people who are very early in their course, but, you know, if it's for a four hour concert, they're unlikely to become infectious during that four hour period. Um, And, you know, if you're missing their uh, detecting their virus because, you know, they're at day 14 of their infection, then they're unlikely to be infectious. So it doesn't really matter from a public health standpoint.
1: Yeah, I was thinking more of the asymptomatic folks, but I I, I get the I get the point. Mm-hmm. The, um where does the nuclear antigen test fit in? You put it right there in the middle of the uh PCR and the and the rapid antigen, but didn't say too much about it. Um what is the utility of that?
0: Yeah, so I think that you're mentioning um the rapid nucleic acid amplification tests like the Abbott ID now. Right. Um so similar concept to PCR in that it detects viral RNA as opposed to viral protein um, like the antigen test, but it does so really fast. And it does so at the expense of being able to detect very low amounts of virus. You know, I think there's a role for for that type of testing um, in facilities that can have a central testing location. So antigen test, much more attractive for at-home use um, or for settings where it might be more difficult to get an actual instrument into a location, um, but let's say you had a dedicated testing center, let's say it was before going into a concert or something like that, then that would be a good use case. You'd get your answer in 15 minutes. Um, it might pick up, you know, a few extra cases compared to the antigen test.
1: Uh, Chris, a little Ball question. Um, given the importance of the people with immunocompromised uh, illnesses, it's sort of uh, I'm inferring from that that it, it, the importance of uh, therapeutics that are there ways to suppress the virus or kill the virus from a therapeutic point of view that would prevent the formation of uh, of variants
0: yeah um so so that's a really good question. So in terms of antivirals, you know, I think there's still a long way to go in order to identify antivirals that are going to make a meaningful impact in terms of therapy. We do have remdesivir, which um, provides some benefit. Um, But in terms of therapeutics that could prevent progression of severe disease in, let's say, an immune-compromised person um, or a high-risk person who becomes infected, we have monoclonal antibody therapeutics that will bind to and sequester the coronavirus. Now, I didn't touch on these um, in particular, but this is an area where variants can have some big issues. Um, Some of the first-generation monoclonal antibodies um, simply don't work against variants because the targets to which they bind on the viral spike protein um, have mutations in them that prevent binding of of the drug. Um, there are several monoclonal antibodies now, including ones that contain a cocktail of different, different monoclonal antibodies. So you have multiple opportunities to, to bind the virus. So I think those will kind of remain an important therapeutic option for severely immune compromised or high risk people um, if given early during their infection. But, uh, but definitely, you know, there's, there's an unmet need for antiviral Drugs um, active against SARS coronavirus, too, and, you know, quite frankly, against other respiratory viruses that cause huge problems like influenza, RSV. We really don't have a drug for RSV. Um, You know, even before the COVID pandemic, lower respiratory infections and pneumonia were the leading cause of death from infectious disease in almost every country. Um, so, um, So there's a big need to address
1: that. Um, uh, one of our attendees asks uh, uh, a historical question about the more traditional uh, or uh, older uh, known infectious diseases like polio, diphtheria, HIV, and so forth. And, and how did their mutations and variations and uh, c- compare and contrast with uh, COVID?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. So if we're talking about um, other types of of viral infections, let's say polio, or let's say um, measles virus. Um, <clears throat> you know, m- mutations um, were identified. Um, and, you know, I think one thing that's, that's really fortunate is the vaccines that were developed were effective against multiple different, um, you know, types of variants of those viruses. In terms of the rates of mutations, there's quite a bit of variability uh, depending on virus, um, a lot of factors go into it, you know, perhaps the best studied is HIV, which, um, for which mutations play a tremendously important role in terms of uh, drug resistance um, and infectiousness. And, you know, it's for that reason that treatment uh, typically includes three different antiviral drugs together to prevent the evolution of variants that are resistant to a single drug. You know, so certainly, you know, over time and depending on the type of virus, uh, variants are, are a big issue. If we're talking about bacterial pathogens, um, I think diphtheria was mentioned, but we could even think about you know, Staph aureus, MRSA, um, I guess a corollary of variance is antibiotic resistance in terms of um, evading treatment efficacy of antibiotics. And, you know, that remains a major challenge for, for human health, um, so.
1: Thank you. Then there's, an, there's another question uh, that you've touched on a little bit, but maybe you could say more about about the pool of people who will never be vaccinated uh, and the impact they have on herd immunity and, and and our well-being as a community of vaccinated people
0: yeah that's a really good question and a very important point you know we we still don't fully understand the threshold needed to reach you know so-called herd immunity where enough people, are vaccinated, that essentially transmission dies out. Um, We think it's somewhere around 70%. um, And, you know, even with less than that, with our current vaccination rates in the US, we continue to see a decline in the number of cases. So that's very reassuring. Um, But undoubtedly, if I think we're facing a scenario where, where COVID, you know, may become something that that lives with us um, forever into the future if we're not able to vaccinate people to the extent that we can truly um, eliminate viral transmission. And I think if that's the scenario, then, you know, then we may be facing this issue of variants um, for, for a long time to come. So, you know, without a doubt, I think probably the consensus is that vaccinating people is probably the most important thing that can be done to abate the covid pandemic worldwide.
1: Uh there's a question about organized surveillance testing strategies and maybe uh we could expand that to talk a little bit about the CDC's recent change about testing and uh what you think about uh, that 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 uh, approach.
0: Yeah, so I You know, there have been some changes in terms of um, CDC guidance, in terms of the need to test after an exposure in vaccinated individuals um, might be one area that we could think about. And I think there are pros and cons of that approach. Um, You know, I think a benefit is um, that we know that vaccinated people are very, in the United States, are very unlikely to actually get a coronavirus infection. Um, So despite exposure, there may not really be a need to test them. You know, we do see a small fraction of breakthrough cases and in certain settings, um, it is important to test these people who may have had a breakthrough coronavirus infection, especially if they're healthcare workers, especially if they're healthcare workers working with vulnerable patient populations, such as severely immune compromised patients that might be a scenario where even if they're vaccinated, even if the healthcare worker is unlikely to get really sick, um, if they develop symptoms, have a compelling COVID exposure, then then we would wanna test them. So I think there are some some intricacies in terms of interpreting it. Um, For most people, it's probably not, for most people who are vaccinated with Pfizer or Moderna vaccines and they've been exposed, probably not a need, but, I think there will, be, there will remain an important use case for certain populations.
1: Maybe one last question, maybe uh, uh, again, you've touched on a little bit, but in, in day-to-day practice, are, are people uh, favoring a combined nasal or pharyngeal swab or just going ahead with the nasal swab alone? Uh, and if with the greatest uh, sensitivity, um, why not do both?
0: That's a, a good question, and I think the move has been towards um, using both um, in, you know, in facilities where that's possible. There's really no downside to doing that. Um, you improve your ability to detect coronavirus. So, you know, at UCSF, that's the direction we've moved. You know, there are certain scenarios where if someone has some type of unique sensitivity, maybe a predilection to nose bleeding then you know in in that that would be a kind of a unique example where we need an alternative strategy to get a test done um, but definitely a move towards uh, the combined testing
1: very good well i think we've touched on most of the other questions not completely but close and um i think to respect everyone's uh, hour uh we should probably uh close for the evening um Again, that was uh, really spectacular and uh, very, very clear and uh, uh, direct and thoughtful. You've obviously skilled as a teacher, and uh, we really appreciate that. And I know all the people who will watch this on, uh, on UCTV and, and beyond will appreciate it as well. Mm-hmm.